Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I'm delighted to host Constantina Zanu, Assistant Professor of Italian and Mediterranean Studies at Columbia University. We will be discussing her captivating book, Transnational Patriotism in the Mediterranean, 1800 to 1850, Stammering the Nation, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. In its pages, Dr. Zanu investigates the long transition from a world of empires to a world of nation-states in the Ionian Adriatic. She narrates the biographies of a group of intellectuals who were born within empires but came of age surrounded by the emerging vocabulary of nationalism, Stammering the Nation, follows a generation of literati from the Ionian Islands who experienced the collapse of the Republic of Venice and the dissolution of the common cultural and political space of the Adriatic, and who contributed to the creation of Italian and Greek nationalisms. By uncovering this forgotten intellectual universe, the book retrieves a world characterized by multiple cultural, intellectual, and political affiliations that have since been buried under the conventional narrative of the formation of nation-states. Ultimately, the book shows how modern nations emerged from an intermingling rather than a clash of ideas concerning empire and liberalism, enlightenment and religion, revolution and conservatism, and East and West. Dr. Zanu, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your book. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous research had led you to write Stammering the Nation. You had previously co-edited a volume with Maurizio Isabella on Mediterranean diasporas, politics and ideas in the long 19th century. How are the two projects related, if at all? Yeah, um, the two projects uh, are very related. They're, they were actually um, wor- works in progress um, and in uh, parallel together. Uh, they developed together as projects. And in fact, let's say that the Mediterranean Diasporas volume, which came out of a, a number, a series of, co- of conferences that we organized with Maurizio, um, was part of, was the, gave me the wider framework where to place the book. Um, and uh, not only that uh, book specifically, that volume, but in, in general, my uh, dialogic relationship with Maurizio Isabella, which started much earlier when I was already doing my PhD in Italy, and I was working on Greek exiles in Italy, while Maurizio was finishing his book on Italian exiles in Greece and every, el- elsewhere, we realized that we were actually thinking that world 
of people on the move and their political visions and ideas um, as part of this. We were thinking in the same way. Um, so we came together, then we became best friends and then intellectual peers. So we decided to organize these conferences and then we decided to uh, publish this volume, um, which is not really the proceedings of the conferences, but it's just a, it's a kind of a, a concise version of what, of, 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 some, sele- of some selection of, of papers, but we also asked from people to give us more papers other papers. Uh, while we were doing these things, we were both working on our books. Um, Maurizio is, is about to publish his book on the um, Southern uh, European revolutions of 1820 and 21. So he, he's still been working on that. And I published uh, Stammering the Nation. So you understand it's all um, connected. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And if he's listening, we're sending our warmest regards to Dr. Isabella. Um, uh, your book draws on recent works in global microhistory and historical biography, right? So you zoom in on a few dozen more or less known individual trajectories to survey grand sweeping historical change in the region. Would you tell us more about your method? Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, this is uh, where it belongs. Um, you're right. But as I, I was writing this book, I came to think about it in uh, in terms of a film. You know, uh, you know, I have a background also as an actress mm-hmm. before being a historian. I used to be an actress, so I I tend. Uh, and and also my father is a theater director, and which means that we because I am mentioning this because we discuss with my father all the time about about my writings. So it means when I was thinking about this book and I was discussing with him uh, all these ideas, he told me, "Okay, that's great, but where are your characters in all these? You know, in dramatic terms, in terms of film, you need characters, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters that that make history really come alive. This is the way I understand somehow stories myself being uh, being raised in 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 an environment of theater and drama. So um, I thought exactly this is what I should do. I should narrate the story through the eyes of these characters and not through the eagle's eye of the historian. Of course, we are historians. We know much more than the characters of the times that uh, we write about, um, as we know much less about ourselves than what a future historian we know, will know. The future historian will know our future. We don't. We know nothing about our future. But um, <clears throat> what I, what I try to do is to 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 describe the changes experienced by uh, these individuals from their point of view in a way i try to imagine a, to imagine a world that um uh, that i could perceive myself let's say if i would see and and I, as i saw my world changing um i wouldn't be able to tell um an over an, an all encompassing story but i would be able to describe what i can see and experience myself as a person in this world so I thought this is the way that I could, I would transmit uh, history. 
on the other so this is the at, at the narrative level on the other hand i feel that uh, focusing on lives and narrating lives gives you as a historian more possibilities um, of understanding not just making things more alive as i said but also um lives because they're messy usually right and because they take place in dif- in different contexts um like uh, like our own lives if you think from how many environments we have been uh, living in and traveling and how multiple contexts survive live in our en- everyday experiences right uh, so somehow lives put together phenomena that we hardly think uh, are related so somehow they they give us new um, insights about how phenomena historical phenomena connect and th- they also give us a different sense of geography um, because lives are not very obedient always i mean they they are becoming they in the 19th century they were becoming more and more obedient to the geographies of the new states right but um they were not always so and um and and um so lives that uh, that elude frontier frontiers all kind of frontiers geographical but also cultural um they create by themselves if you follow them different uh, perspectives on divisions on the divisions of the world so they provide you with different possibilities about about ideologies political solutions um all these things they 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 provide you with what i term open-ended future mm-hmm. it's a wonderful segue into my next question um you forcefully argue that the transition from empires to nation states in the Ionian Adriatic had been more protracted, complex, and as you just put it, messy uh, or messier than separate national historiographies have cared to admit. So how do the analytical concepts of transnational patriotism and imperial nationalism help you illuminate uh, this process? Yeah. So this is a great question at the heart of what I was trying to do. Um, in reality, we are used to this story of nationalism, uh, you know, as being um, um, exclusive, uh, exclusionary, and aggressive, and uh, that brought all these bad things that we know that it brought in the 20th century mostly. Um, but I was, for, as if you focus in that very first part of the 19th century, I believe until the times of the crime, let's say until the 40, 48, and then maybe also the Crimean War. So these were the times that the vocabulary of the nation, not yet of the nation state, the vocabulary of the nation was born, um, okay, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And it didn't have yet the content that it would acquire later. It, it was born. So it was born with multiple possibilities, um, which we tend to forget because one among these possibilities came, um, was realized, the possibility of, uh, of nations forming their own states. Mm-hmm. Instead, if you look at that period of uh, yet um, nationalism under formation, um, 
you get very different meanings of of of, of nations and for example and this is because people at the time they people in general they tend to understand the world through their lived experience right not they don't know the future we historians know the future as i said so they these people what, think about it what did they have as a lived experience or even as a remembered uh, experience um, what they had behind was a world of vast empires of very um, multi-ethnic vast empires where in reality language was not identified with your ethnicity necessarily it was mostly uh, a socially uh, a, a social attribute than uh, an ethnic attribute it wouldn't mean anything in terms of identity let's say um, um one was this, they, they, they had this thing. Another was that they lived in a world of very uh, strong localisms, local autonomies, right? And, and, and this was uh, obvious even in the first uh, liberal revolutions. Let's see if we take the case of uh, the 1820-21 liberal revolutions um, in the Mediterranean. If you take the Greek, the Greek revolution or even... Uh, the Sicilian, Neapolitan, and Piedmontese revolutions and the Spanish revolutions. Uh, these were the demands of the revolutionaries were always they started at least as demands of local autonomy in front of a centralizing power. Uh, they were not demands of creating a unified uh, nation state. There was not such such concept even to be honest. Um, so, uh, so you had this strong uh, tradition of local autonomy, and also you had um, this uh, idea that, uh, of course, if you can have ethnic, um, um, ethnic or even national uh, um, existence, let's say, which would be independent of the political setting in which you would leave. So the important thing for these early um, in, uh, liberals and uh, nationalists was to be able to keep that national character um, um, in the form of a constitution, let's say, or of local liberties that would guarantee the liberty of the press and so on. And, and the best way to do that would be to have... Uh, some empire, powerful empire, protect you. I mean, this was this was the most obvious thing. There was no other example to follow, really. Uh, if you were not somewhere with a strong uh, um, royal tradition, let's say, like in France. Okay, so um, so I mean, uh, and we see that in the first years of the of the nineteenth century after the Napoleonic Wars. Up to 1948, um, all the solutions that were proposed and thought about uh, by the liberals uh, that I have been studying mm-hmm. were solutions uh, of some form of national independence, uh, which would be um, uh, a statelet, a small statelet protected by big, big empires. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it never worked. I mean... There is, there is a reason why this uh, 
open-endedness um, ended in the way we know, right? There is a reason for that because all other solutions failed somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but this doesn't mean that these other solutions were um, not um, more obvious at the time. Um, um, yeah, I wanted to say something else, which I forgot now, but it will come to okay. That's okay. Very good. Very good. I mean, I'm not sh- shifting gears. We're still on the same terrain. And for people like Ugo Foscolo or Ioannis Kapodistrias, uh, the latter is commonly regarded as the architect or the father of the modern Greek state. Empire and nation were not mutually exclusive. Right? So he and other protagonists of your book believed that national self-rule could be attained and secured within larger systems of shared sovereignty. Um, how did subsequent national histories later on alighted these open-endedness, this open-endedness or these forgotten realities and possibilities that contemporaries had entertained? Well, they did, they did it in two ways. Uh, one was to change uh, the interpretation completely of, 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 the, um, of the period, uh, even of the texts uh, of the period, like the text that these people wrote or even the actions that they, they did. So, for example, Capodistrias has been um, uh, um, interpreted as uh, someone who was very much, you know, uh, he, he, he was a conservative, uh, almost reactionary because he was um, allied to the Russian, uh, to the Tsarist court. So if someone is so much it's so close to the Tsarist court and, and, and lives and understands the world through um, an imperial vision and an, an imperial understanding, not only an imperial, but also an ecumenic and religious understanding of the world. This means that there is no way that he can be um, a nationalist and also like a, liber, a liberal, first of all, um, who would provide and believe in a in the constitution, in the value of a constitution within a liberal uh, state, as it was Greece, as it was formed. And in fact, uh, all interpretations about Capodistrias are um, like they see him as the complete opposite of Adamandios Korais, who would represent yeah. um, the enlightened, um, enlightened and radical liberalism. Um, and Kabodistrias would be the man of the past wanting to impose, you know, um, reactionary politics in Greece. Um, and I say, no, there is, there is more to the story. I try to, uh, you know, to make, uh, to, I try to give uh, space to that kind of conservative liberalism which existed around the Congress of Vienna and which was the rule not the exception. The exception was actually Korais. Korais was really um, out of context at the time. Mm-hmm. He was considered really peculiar. Um, but some, somehow, because we cannot understand this uh, mixing, this melange between imperial and nationalist ideologies, we have kind of distorted the narrative. So one way to do the, 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 the history, historians, national historians uh, later on interpreted this was by changing the meaning completely. Another way was, of course, by eliminate, eliminating most of these characters from the historical record. Just they, they are forgotten. They are outside uh, history. And um, 
another is to um yeah another thing that i wanted to mention in in how you give new meanings to events that may have multiple meanings really it, it concerns the 48 revolutions in italy um i was thinking that ha- when uh, when i uh, uh when i studied these revolutions at the university in italy um i i I learned I what what I saw was that the, these were part let's say of a series of failed revolutions that would bring to the unification of the Italian nation state right so they were a step towards that direction when I was writing the book and more I went into the lives of the protagonists of these revolutions I the more I realized that these were not actually the steps uh, the last failed steps towards the unification, but these were the, like the last efforts to keep a local level of federal states in Italy before they completely uh, failed, and, and, and thus they went for the unification perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was the last um, expression of of um, organizing politically on a on a local level instead yeah. of a national level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I mean, your your answer partly anticipated my next question, uh, but it, I think it's an important aspect of the work. You stress the importance of religion uh, within this lo- lost intellectual universe between the two shores of the of the Adriatic. How does your focus on what you call ecumenical orthodoxy? which spans the Ottoman and Russian empires, add to this polycentric understanding of the Enlightenment and modern liberalism and nationalism? Yeah. Um, so my thinking in relation to religion, again, comes from uh, from being raised uh, within the intellectual environment of, of Greek uh, intellectual studies. Uh, I believe it's more or less the same in the whole of Balkans. We have a scheme um, explaining uh, modernization in these countries uh, on the basis of of local intellectuals following uh, developments in the West after um, a specific um, transformation of uh, of the economy, which became more um, merchant. Uh, uh, direct, let's say, merchant, merchant, uh, merchant defined, and so the fact that the more merchant, the merchants defined economy means that they came, they came in touch with Western Europe more and with the ideas of the de- of the developed and liberal West. Um, nevertheless, the lives of these individuals I studied, as I said, they took me to different geographies. That, nev- that did not really correspond to this overarching scheme of, uh, you know, taking uh, or being influenced, as they used to say, by these uh, Western ideas. Because these people would not travel only to the West. They would travel um, back and forth between the Balkans, up and down, <laughs> in, in between Naples, St. Petersburg, um, um, they would go to southern Russia. They would go to England. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes in, within the same one life, would do all these uh, different, um, uh, not just trips, but like part of their lives living here and there. 
And so you have a constantly uh, a constantly mobile world of intellectuals who who move between the different contexts on the basis of what changes politically in their area. Because we have to understand, first of all, that the Adriatic and the Aegean at the time are, are areas w- which change constantly in terms of politics and in terms of imperial protection um, through a lifespan. So like throughout 50 years, they changed, I don't know, five times or more hands uh, which means that this changes the orientation of the people, the opportunities for jobs, citizenship. So they, they acquire different citizenship. They 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 learn new languages. They come into into contact with with different um, environments. So so I didn't get at all the vision that these people go to the West. They are enlightened, illuminated, and they come back and they implement ideas. And not at all. So I, I, the picture I had in front of me was actually a combination of all these different uh, intellectual environments, including the Russian one, and including especially uh, when I, and of course when you say Russian, it's so general, but in, in specifically here, um, there was a circle I studied uh, with intellectuals who were in the Danubian principalities. They were ex fanariots or... Uh, or fanariots even, but um, and um, and these people, uh, they somehow uh, they were most of them were working uh, by that moment. They were working for the Tsarist court, and um, they developed somehow a, a form of Greek patriotism. Even they had, even if they they had never uh, stepped foot in in what became Greece after all. But uh, these people came, um, uh, developed a set of ideas about uh, Greece as a nation, which w- should be free. Um, the ideas were hardly revolutionary. Actually, they, they were anti-revolutionary. But still, they were fierce nationalists, right? And these were people that collaborated for the elaboration of the of the Saint, um, Saint, uh, Saint El, uh, the Holy Alliance mm-hmm. and uh, the Treaty of the Holy Alliance and um, and the Congress of Vienna. So how do you explain this? How do you explain the most the fact that you know reaction and revolution could be combined somehow mm-hmm. in the in the minds of these people? And so this led me to to think about uh, the. Um, old ecumen- ecumenical visions, religious visions of the world that could coexist within a new um, nationalist frame. Because these people did not know yet that actually in a world of nation states, the church would be sub- submitted to the uh, state because this is what happened eventually. Uh, these people imagined that you know the nation could be um, subunit of a universal imperial and religious, you know, Christ, or, or universal Christian empire, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. They didn't think that the nation would be more important than the church. This is what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so for, for some years, this vision could survive. Uh, it had some possibility chances, let's say. Yeah, and, and you clearly showed that some of your protagonists were torn 
between different loyalties and affiliations, uh, right? I mean, Alexander I, the Russian emperor, does not support the Greek Revolution initially, and Kapodistrias is there, um, eventually becomes uh, the governor of the first modern Greek state, even though he had served as a Russian diplomat, yeah. right? It was not uh, mutually exclusive, you know. It was. Uh, it seems very strange today, but um, all these people had changed so many times loyalties anyway um, that um, that it was not. It was actually the norm than the exception. Yeah. Very good. And um, language and space also play a key role in in the analysis. How do you trace the changes in linguistic, also symbolic geographies in the region? Uh, through this period of half a century. How do we get from a common multilingual Venetian space to a, or what you call a fragmented, multi-state, and increasingly culturally uniform Ionian region? Yeah. Yes, thanks. Um, this this is the question that actually informed the the title, which is actually which is now the subtitle of the book, "Summering the Nation." I wanted it to be the title, but the publisher did not agree. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but um, the, the 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 thing that I found more interesting is that these intellectuals um, uh, were those who who forged the creation of national languages in these spaces, and. We are talking about uh, people who wrote dictionaries, uh, who uh, wrote literature that defined what uh, the national language should look like, the standardized uh, literary canon. People like uh, Dionysios Solomos in the case of Greece, for example, who created, actually he crafted with his poetry, uh, the modern Greek poetic language, language out of nothing, really. Um, the same as Calvos, um, another poet from the Ionian Islands, but also uh, Foscolo, who was from Zante and created the the um, um, the example of risorgimento literature in Italian. So these were people um, who crafted what it came to be the canon afterwards. However, they themselves were somehow outside of this construct they made because these were people that used a language, the new language, other than the one that came to be their national language. They were multilingual, uh, most of them, or they had the wrong language from what would be um, the the language that would suit them, let's say, or they had to learn the language that they had chose to represent. Um, and uh, let me give you some examples. For example, um, Foscolo, uh, born in Zante, he was he knew some uh, um, the local Venetian dialect, which was not, of course, standardized. You could not write it; it was an oral uh, language. And he knew some uh, local Greek too. Um, again, idiomatic, um, uh, nothing to do with education or literature, this local idiom. Uh, when he went to Venice at the age of 15, he had to educate himself into the Italian language very hardly uh, and with a lot of effort. 
And uh, it's from one of his letters that I take the metaphor of stammering because he was he used that metaphor to say that I stammer only the Italian. I'm not, I cannot really write it. In a few, very few years, like three or four, he wrote tragedies that became, um, you know, event, huge events uh, in the Italian patriotic movement. And then after 10 years, he wrote one of his, of, of, of his, um, of the novels that would define literature, in Italian literature in the age of the Risorgimento. So someone who would uh, stammer the Italian, um, he then became gradually fluent in it. However, this stammering um, was reflected throughout his life in different aspects. He became an exile of all the patriotisms he acquired, right? And um, and and somehow I use this stammering metaphor uh, to speak about the way that these people uh, created a world where they actually could not belong uh, because they never they felt at home in different homes, but they also did not feel at home in these homes. They felt inside and outside of these different constructs in the way that the constructs came to, in the meaning, the, the, the new meaning that they came to acquire. Another example that I want to talk about is Solomos, who, um, born in the same island as Foscolo in Zante, just uh, 20 years after him, um, um, he, he was educated in the Italian language because he went to a school and university in Italy. Uh, he had no idea. He just knew some elementary Greek, the kind of uh, uh, lullabies and things that his mom, uh, that his illiterate mother would sing to him. And then he decided, and he started a literary career by writing poetry in, in Italian, of course. There was no other way to write poetry. There was no tradition in Greek poetry. So when he went back to Greece and the Greek Revolution, uh, he went back to the Ionian Islands, never to Greece, sorry. And the Greek Revolution erupted. Um, he took the advice of friends, and he also thought that it, he had better chances if he wrote in this new field that opened up, which was Greek, really. <laughs> so he created Greek literature, and he started learning, like actually inventing uh, words that he said he gathered from the mouth of the people. Um, and, and he wrote his poems in Italian, and then he, he wrote them in prose, in Italian prose, and then gradually and very with a torment, uh, very, a very difficult process, a very long process, he translated them into Greek, uh, modern Greek poetic terms. And he became the national poet of Greece. Um, by the end of his life, he was already very tired of this effort. So he decided, okay, now I can relax. I can go back to writing Italian the way I know. So he, in the last uh, years of his like, life, he never wrote Greek again. He was by that time the national poet of Greece, but he never wrote Greek again. But it, it, the Balkans are full of these kinds of uh, of stories, you know. I was planning at a certain moment to write something about uh, these intellectuals in the in-between in the Balkans. But then my life took me to the U.S. and I <laughs> I changed my mind. 
it. Yeah. And what what you have described um, so wonderfully now is an in-between space in a context that is linguistically and politically flexible and, as you would put it, open-ended, in which people like Foscolo, uh, Solomos Calvos uh, operated and and, and lived their lives. But when we arrive at mid-century, Nicola Tomaseo makes an appearance on Corfu, and at that time, uh, things are different, uh, right? Uh, less flexible, less open-ended. Would you would you care to elaborate on Tomaseo's experience in in Corfu and his relationship with uh, Musoxidi, which is basically the, the closing the closing uh, frame that that you present to your readers? Yes, I'm excited that you can pronounce all these names uh, correctly. <laughs> Mustoxidi, especially. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, by the time uh, Tomaseo goes as an exile in Corfu after his participation in the 48 revolution in Venice, um, he uh, things are very different. Um, we have the outbreak of the Crimean War, um, where in reality, um, we see um, a hardening of the lives uh, of the lines in term of re- in term of religion, first of all. So it's the first time that in the Adriatic you see this, this uh, the, the distinction between Catholic and Orthodox Christians to be so hard. Uh, before that time, uh, a local kind of religious coexistence in the uh, in the islands, but also in the Adriatic in general. Um, would uh, enable, you know, um, Orthodox and Catholic to marry with each other with no problem, to uh, f- to to use the churches uh, alternating uh, alternate uh, alternating in the same spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. um, like uh, it wouldn't be. It was more of a um, a fluid um, um, and even. Um, borderland re, borderland religion it has been it has been characterized by new studies but uh, by the time of the Crimean war and because of the effort that Russia put into uh, religious uh, education because one of the of the strong cards of Russia's imperial expansion in the Mediterranean was based was religion really so they played this card out very strongly, especially in the Aegean and the Ionian Islands. So they they kind of forced awareness about orthodoxy as being distinct from Catholicism. At the same time, of course, um, the Pope uh, is forcing a new, uh, uh, harder vision of Catholicism through uh, activity of um, um, of mi- missionary activity in the east, right? Because they perceive the they perceive the threat from ortho- Orthodox Russia. So you have this field of religious battles in the Mediterranean that hardens the lines between uh, populations. And so Tomaseo, being uh, a Catholic and 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 a fierce Catholic, like he was a believer. Um, he still believed that actually he's another another example of someone who believed that his nationalist vision of Italy could coexist with uh, 
with um, you know conservative Catholicism, what he thought liberal Catholicism, but it was it would be counted as conservative. Um, so uh, he pe- perceived this in, inimical atmosphere against Catholics in Corfu, a space where he thought it was much more welcoming for Catholics uh, during its uh, longer history of Catholic he- hegemony really there. Um, that was one thing uh, of lines hardening at the time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and you could see this religious lines hardening also in Venice itself, where it had a, a, um, a long, um, a centuries-old community of Greeks. When we say Greeks, of course, in the Venetian context, we mean all peoples, all Orthodox peoples from the Balkans. They would be part of the community, and so um, we see that in the begin, in the mid-century, all these the remainings of these people there, because the community was uh, it was like uh, losing its uh, anyway its power and, uh, and and its members. But those who stayed there, they were complaining that they couldn't find jobs anymore because they were Orthodox. Okay, so another uh, field of hardening was the linguistic divisions. So by this time, um, we see that language has come actually to represent your national belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, so this means that anything you could do with language, you would do with language. For example, the way you the the, the language you 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 would choose to write your works in, right, um, would mean something. It would it would be a political statement. So I decide to speak, like, like I said about Solomos, I decide to write Greek poetry because politically I want to be Greek, because culturally I want to be Greek, but also because I am in favor of the Greek revolution and I want to belong in this new world. Um, the same happened with many intellectuals in the Ionian Islands, Mustoxidi being one of them. Mustoxidi had become, uh, let's say for those who do not know, and and why should you know Mustoxidi? <laughs> but Mustoxidi was someone, one of these figures completely forgotten nowadays. Um, but he was very, he was like the, very important at the time um, in the sense that he had acquired a lot of fame in Italy as a classicist, uh, mm-hmm. Italian classicist, of course. He was writing about Homer in Italian. He was formed into Italian letters. Um, he lived in Italy for many years. He then became um, a diplomatic um, servant of the Tsar in the Russian consulates, which were multiplying in Italy at the time. And then um, he, being a close friend of Capodistrias, he was invited by him to become the prime minister, the, sorry, the minister of culture uh, of the newly founded Greek state. So he he started learning Greek. Um, and then once Kapodistrias was assassinated, he went back to his native Ionian Islands and he became a politician in the uh, um, British protected independent, so-called independent state of the Ionian Islands. So uh, there, uh, because um, he thought that the Ionian Islands should be part from now on of the Greek world, and this is what actually Britain had promoted among its policies, because uh, Britain thought that uh, 
Britain would acquire a lot of support at the local level if they presented themselves as protectors, imperial protectors, who would uh, and um, who would help promote the ethnic identity of the island, which so they would help Hellenize uh, the island, let's say. And so within this political framework, Mustoxidi became uh, a fervent supporter of the of the use of the public use of Greek of the Greek language in the Ionian Islands, but also he uh, published a journal um, which was the first one of the first history journal, journals in the Greek world, um, which was entirely written in Greek and uh, promoted uh, a historical culture, uh, created a historical culture around uh, around the Greek modern Greek history. So Tomazeo and Mustoxidi had been very close friends in the past, in the Italian past, in their Italian past. Now they are found. They are found in the Ionian Islands under these new new conditions. Everybody's changed, right? And uh, and Tomazeo cannot cannot recognize cannot recognize this friend who was working with him in Italy, uh, help him him translate ancient Greek into Italian. So Tomazeo was helping him because Tomazeo had a better idea of ancient Greek, and also he he actually knew better modern Greek at the time than than uh, Musuxidi himself. And now he sees this friend who doesn't recognize his Italian past at all. He promotes just uh, the Greek, uh, as, ev- he promotes everything Greek on the islands. He develops this anti-Italian rhetoric and anti-Catholic rhetoric because Musuxidi is also a believer in, in the Orthodox Church and in this ecumenical Orthodox uh, imperial tradition. So they clash. Um, Tomazeo is very hurt. He writes these long letters, public letters, you know, uh, one after another. And um, and Mustoxi, the answers. And uh, so I I end the book with this personal, if you want, clash, which becomes, of course, um, um, public. And it it represents something else. It represents the end of of that world of transnational patriotism, transcultural intellectuals, like these two people, um, and uh, it shows that by that time, you know, uh, we are we we live in a new world. Yeah. yeah. In other words, the Ionian Adriatic changes from a bridge into a border, as exactly. as you put it. Yeah, which is a which, if I may say, uh, I should recognize that this is an expression used by. Dominique Rail in, in her amazing book uh, about uh, uh, the nationalists who feared the nation. Uh, you probably know it. Uh, it was published in to- 2012. And it talks about, uh, Tomazeo is one of those characters, and actually talks about these multinational intellectuals uh, in the northern part of the Adriatic. Yeah. Wonderful. And Dr. Rail has a, a new book out in 2020. Yes. On the on Fiume, so we also send our warm regards to her yes. if she's listening. <laughs> she will listen, and also she. I should say that she was also one of my big inspirations, and she and she takes part in that book uh, we I quoted with Mauritia. So <laughs> splendid, splendid. Yeah. Well, finally, uh, where has this project taken you, uh, Doctor Zanu? What are you currently working oh. on? Thank you. Uh, that's a beautiful question. I, I I think that this this project the first project was very um, 
very autobiographical in a way, uh, in that uh, in that, that this project expressed uh, so many things that uh, I wanted to put into paper um, at that phase of my life. And if I may, uh, I say say a few words about that. What I mean is that um, yeah, is that um, you know. Um, when I started studying these subjects, I was a student in Greece and then in Italy. And so I was like immersed in these two cultures and I was trying to uh, somehow find a subject that would put them together. And, I, and, and this world, which was lost uh, in between the, the shores of, of these two countries, was a very good thing to do that. Um, and then the kind of questions that I asked, though, are very much con- they, they they were very much connected to the fact that I grew up in Cyprus in Nicosia um, as uh, uh, a daughter of a refugee family from the north, a Greek Cypriot refugee family, and um, I always you know growing up in this in a, in a fragmented space really because I grew up in this city which um, which has questionable boundaries and mm-hmm. uh, and very elusive boundaries you never know when the roads the road ends and you don't understand if you are on the other side what is the continuity of the of the street really so um i i think that i had a vision of the world which was already uh fragmented and somehow i learned to question frontiers from the, from very early and so uh, and also uh, uh, growing up in that space, it's a multilingual space, um, and um, and then this multiling- multilingualism and that mobility, uh, the, the refugees' mobility, if I may say, the, the refugees' multiple imaginaries, because you never know what your home is, if your home is the one where you grow in, or if the, your home is the one that your parents talk about, you know. And then that Im- fragmented imaginary coincided and it was merged with my imaginary with my life as a student on the move uh, and a scholar on the move like all nomadic scholars of our age Mm -hmm. because before I found a job which I hope is permanent um, I like lived and worked in more than uh, eight countries so you know um, uh, this um, this being a bridge an intellectual bridge myself um, led me to ask these kind of questions to this uh, to this subject. So I think I did that. I was uh, it was really a little bit of therapeutic also to- talking about this. So this was a project very much uh, connected to my autobiography. Now um, I come to a new project, which is again connected emotionally. To my different spaces and uh, mm-hmm. and cultural um, affiliations, but in a completely different way. Uh, so now the new story I'm writing about um, it's uh, again a kind of biography, a family biography. So I'm working on this project very tentatively, um, titled "Fragmented Statues Reassembled Lives." Two Brothers, The Birth of Archaeology and the Transformation of the Modern World, which is actually uh, we, which is a project that tells the, the story of two brothers, Luigi and Alessandro Palma di Cesnola. They lived in the second half of the 19th century. They were Piedmontese. Uh, 
Um, and these people were, uh, they actually had lives that became global, spanning the Mediterranean, Europe, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, North and South America. They did everything. They transformed in everything that you may imagine. They were, they fought as professional soldiers and as mercenaries in the Crimean War. So their, their story starts in the Crimean War. So we are in the second half of the 19th century. They, they, they became explorers in South America um, they, and gold diggers in South America. They wrote and published anthropological and archaeological texts. They excavated, they collected, and they even forged antiquities. They became consuls. Um, they fought in various civil wars, uh, wars in America mostly. And so one of them uh, became the U.S. consul in Cyprus by poor, by, by, by mere chance in Ottoman Cyprus. And when there, he excavated the whole island and he managed to sail this collection to the newly created Metro, um, um, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And by a, a series of coincidences, this guy became the first director uh, of the Met, and actually, actually the longest-term director, 25 years. So he was the creator of the Met and and uh, a great contributor to the archaeological culture, the emergence of archaeology at the time. So I'm writing through these two lives, uh, which com- combine, as you can imagine, my geographies in an amazing way, you know. Um, I, I tried to tell a story about you know, the changing world, the transforma- the, the world uh, in transformation in the second half of the 19th century. But also uh, uh, about, I'm trying to talk about the opportunities and limits created by war, by imperialism, by migration, the rise of the press and of global capitalism. But also I'm telling a story about the emergence of archaeology as a discipline um, at the intersection, the intersection of um imperialism, racism, um, financial speculation, and uh, nationalism, I would say. So again, I'm doing a history of a life, of two lives, of more lives than that, because I see also the people they met with, and their wives, and other, their diggers, and their lo- the locals, and all these people. And I try to, to tell a bigger story, combining at the same time an emotional level, which is very autobiographical about myself. Fascinating. I cannot wait to read it. And uh, this goes to show that everyone should study the 19th century. I mean, one <laughs> cannot make these things up. Uh, wonderful. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. They are much, much fancier than any, um, uh, than, any fi- than any fiction. Sometimes I find the history to be really much more imaginative than, than fiction itself, right? Yes. Um, Dr. Zanu, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Me too. Um, Thank you so much for joining New Books in Eastern European Studies. Thank you. Bye.